2006, January 9th, Astronomy 162, Winter Quarter, The Ohio State University. Beginning of Unit 1, the stars in their courses. Lecture on the distances of galaxies, beginning in a moment. Start the recorder. Okay, also today is the first lecture. I've got most of the uh, technical issues out of the way. Today is the first lecture that's going to be recorded for real for an experimental podcast. Probably later this week is where the podcast will go live, and I'll do something before class showing you the little XML tag you need to go put into your iTunes or whatever program you use to subscribe to it if you're interested. Today we're going to be getting a new section, the first unit of this course. The course is divided into large topical units, stars, galaxies, the universe, and beyond. Today we're going to be talking about the first unit, which is the observed properties of stars. I've entitled this section, The Stars in Their Courses. The first of these lectures is going to be lecture... Okay, let's see. Laptop there, blank screen there. Why didn't someone say something? Jeez. All right, yes, the ta- start over again. I'm not going to be able to edit that out of the MP3. Today we're starting Unit 1, which is going to be on the observed properties of stars. We're going to be asking that first question. What is it? Describe it. We're not going to say a lot about the physics of stars yet, how they work or how they evolve. That's going to be the next unit. So I want to just spend some time with the observed properties, what we can see, what are the descriptions of the stars that lead us to questions that can be answered physically that will be in the next unit on stellar structure and evolution, how stars work and how they evolve, how they change in time. But before we can do that, the most fundamental question we have to ask is, how far away is a star? It will turn out to be one of the common threads that will run through this entire course is the whole question of distances. Distances are key to measuring a lot of the physical properties of objects in the universe. It's also one of the most challenging and difficult things to measure, as this lecture and every other unit that we begin on a new class of topics will always begin with, how do we measure its distance? It's a fundamental quantity. So, we'll begin with today's key ideas. First and foremost, distance is a fundamental property of an object in the sense that we need to know the distance if we're going to measure the real physical properties of that object in many cases. It's a very important quantity, but it will turn out to be a very difficult quantity to measure for reasons that should become clear through this lecture. We're then going to introduce the primary method we use for measuring the distances to stars. It's a geometric method called the method of trigonometric parallaxes. It's the only direct way we have of measuring the distances to stars. And we'll give lots of examples and and show you how that works. Because we're going to want to do this for other things, but we can't. So we're going to have to play games to get distances to other things when trigonometric parallaxes run out. Once we've defined this idea of trigonometric parallaxes, we're going to introduce the units of distance, the yardstick that's relevant for measuring the distances between stars. In the solar system, we use the astronomical unit. But when we're talking about distances between stars, we're going to define a new unit called the parsec, which is short for parallax second, and we're going to relate that to the unit of light years that we introduced last week. It turns out for this course and for astrophysics, we use the unit of the parsec rather than the light year for reasons that will be explained. It's actually the thing we observe, whereas light year has to be derived. And I'll try to give some rationale for that as the course goes on. So today the problem is, how do we measure the distances to stars? How do we really start with the first order description? How far away is the thing we're looking at? Distances, why do we care? Well, distances are exceedingly important to us. If I don't know how far away something is, I can't get at the real physical things that I want to know. For example, luminosity of a star. How much power is it putting out? Is it a 100-watt light bulb or a billion-watt light bulb? I don't know that if I don't know the distance of the star. There's no label written on the star that tells me how bright it is, per se. 
I can't measure the masses of objects from their orbital motions. As we saw last Friday, I can measure the masses of objects in astronomy by watching their orbits and using Newton's version of Kepler's third law, or some variation on that theme like through the circular velocity. But if I don't know the distance to the object, I can't translate the angular size that I see on the sky to a physical distance in astronomical units and get an orbit. I can't get a mass. So I have to know the distance to get the masses. Let's say I see a star moving through space. Am I seeing a star that's very close by moving slowly or a star that's very distant moving very rapidly? If all I see is their projection on the sky, I don't know anything really until I know the distance. Once I know the distance, I know how to do the geometry of that projection and I can tell you what the object's actual true motion through space is. I also don't know how big the object is. Let's say I see a galaxy or a nebula, a glowing cloud of gas. I have no idea whether it's the size of our solar system or could encompass thousands of solar systems. If I don't know its distance, I simply can't answer that question. These are very <laughs> important issues that are all tied to the distances. But the problem is this. Even though distance is a, is a fundamental property, it's extremely hard to measure in astronomy. And the reason is because we're here and they're out there and I can't walk the distance between us and them. So the problem comes down to this. How do I measure the distance of something that's out of the reach of my instruments? Now, if I wanted to measure the size of this room, I could pull out a tape measure and I could just measure away until I'm crazy. I can do a direct measurement by walking up to you saying, here, you hold the end of the ruler, walk back and say, oh, yeah, I'm four or five meters from that person here in the front row. Those are absolute direct physical measurements because I can approach the thing I'm measuring. But there are lots of terrestrial circumstances where I cannot simply walk up to what I'm measuring, lay down a tape measure, and follow it out over time. Some examples of things you might have run into. Surveying, right? You don't run around with a tape measure when you're surveying large tracts of land. It's extremely difficult. Or if you're mapping extremely large areas. You can do that, but it's extremely tedious. You're not going to cover a lot of area. Lewis, uh, for example, the uh, Mason-Dixon line, which is laid out in the eastern United States, the boundary between Maryland and Pennsylvania. That had to be laid out laboriously over many years by the surveyors Mason and Dixon. But you didn't build a map of Pennsylvania colony doing that because it would have taken you forever to do that. So you use indirect geometric methods instead of directly laying down chains and rules. Military range finding, okay? Let's face it. If the Marines in Iraq want to dump some artillery on the bad guys out there, they don't walk up to them and say, here, excuse me, hold this end of the ruler while we measure where you are and then pound you. <laughs> Obviously, you want to get their range from a distance and then pound them. And they're, of course, trying to do the same to you. Any astronomical object is the same way. I can't trail a string to the moon or to an asteroid or to another star. It's physically impossible to bridge those distances much less build a string that long. So what do I do? What I do is what these people do when they're surveying, when they're finding range of targets, when you're finding distances to astronomical objects, is you use the geometry of the situation to back it out. Use the fact that a small triangle is related to a big triangle through very simple rules of axiomatic geometry. And you use that to back out the distances to objects. This is an art that goes back at least to the Babylonians and the Egyptians for sure, and certainly is behind all of modern distance and range finding. You use the geometry of the situation, measuring points, literally measuring triangles. In astronomy, we use the technique of trigonometric parallaxes. Now, we've seen this picture before, or one like it, from Astronomy 161. 
The question of, does the Earth go around the Sun, or vice versa, at the time of Copernicus, came down scientifically to a question of, can I see the consequences of the Earth's motion around the Sun? And one way to do that is if you have a nearby star seen against a background of distant stars, then in June, I'm looking at that nearby star against those background stars like that. If I wait six months later to December, and I look at that foreground star, it appears to be against the background yellow star instead of the background red and blue stars. This effect of the apparent shift of that star because a changing perspective, in this case the perspective of the Earth moving around the Sun, is called a parallax. Now, parallax is actually a common phenomenon. For example, you should all be able to do this. Put your hand out at arm's length and put your thumb up. I want you all to do this. Use your, close one eye, pick your right eye or your left eye, whichever you wish, and use your thumb to cover my face. Okay, now, holding your thumb still, open the other eye and close the eye that was open. And blink back and forth between your two eyes. You see your thumb alternately cover and uncover my face. But your thumb isn't moving. What's changing is which eye you're looking for. Your eyes, one eye, left eye, or right eye, forms the base of a triangle. And your thumb makes the, plays the role of the foreground star, and my face plays the role of the background star. The same thing. I'm building a triangle here. Once I build a triangle, all the rules of geometry come into play. For example, I can measure the inside angle of a triangle. I know if I have one inside angle and its opposite side, I have uniquely determined the other two sides of the triangle. So I can measure this angle. How much does the star appear to move back and forth with respect to distant background stars? Because I'm looking at it not from left eye, right eye, which is the basis of stereo vision, but I'm looking at it from one side of the Earth's orbit to another. The Earth, going across the, its orbit from June to December, as I've drawn it here, makes a triangle whose base is two astronomical units long. That's 300 million kilometers. So I can then lay out an angle here. I know this distance. That's the Earth-Sun distance, one astronomical unit. I know this angle, which I call the parallax angle. I therefore know the length of each of these sides of the triangles. Those triangle sides are the distance to the star. So this becomes the method of trigonometric parallaxes. I simply watch a nearby star over the course of a year as it moves back and forth with respect to the distant stars. I measure that parallax angle. I have previously measured the size of the astronomical unit to high accuracy. Tricks like transit of Venus or bouncing radar signals off the inner planets. There's all kinds of ways I can do it. In fact, I can measure the mean Earth-Sun distance to an accuracy of about 5 centimeters in 150 million kilometers, and that gives me the distance. Yes, sir? Well, wasn't there even a gentleman back in ancient times who, I mean, he, he heard that shadows where he lived up in, like, northern uh, uh, Europe were longer than if he were to go down to, like, Egypt? And he actually proved it within some degree, a large degree of accuracy? That was to measure the size of the Earth. That's an example of using the geometry of different shadows. It was a guy named Eratosthenes of Cyrene. He was based in Alexandria in northern Egypt, and he heard t travelers' tales that in Cyrene, down on the, on the cataracts of the Nile to the south, no shadow was cast on the day of the summer solstice. And so he used the difference of sun angle on the same day between north and south to measure the arc of the Earth, and then by knowing the distance from Alexandria to Cyrene, multiplied by, in this case, by 50, and found the circumference of the Earth. 
even though the earth was far larger than he could have possibly walked out with a meter stick. It's the same thing. He basically drew, in this case, not a triangle, but the, but the arc of a circle. Here we're going to be drawing a side of a triangle. It's a lot easier in that sense. So what we've done is we've found one angle. I know one side. So if you will, I found the sun angle distance to Syene. It's the same geometry, just translated to the surface of a sphere instead of in space. But yeah, exactly the same connection. They're using the same geometry. This gives us the method of parallaxes. Now, parallax is backwards. Okay? Again, let's, let's do the little experiment here with the, with the thumb. Hold out your thumb as far as possible at arm's length, cover my face, and then blink your eyes back and forth. Now, covering my face, move your thumb in real close and blink again. You'll notice your thumb appears to move a whole lot more when it's close than when it's far away. Not surprising. When the object is close, you have a small triangle. When the object is distant, you have a long, thin triangle. And so the effect of moving back and forth, this is fixed. This is the size of the Earth's orbit. The further the star, the smaller this parallax angle in between. The smaller the little angle on the inside of the peak of the triangle here. So the more distant a star becomes, the smaller that parallax angle is. Yes, sir? Yes, the question, the question was, do, we, do the people, when they measure parallaxes in practice, take into account the fact that the Earth's orbit is, in fact, an ellipse? The answer to that is absolutely. In fact, you don't make two measurements at one point and then another. What you do is make a series of measurements over the course of a year. And what you actually trace out in the sky is a little ellipse, which is a projection of the Earth's orbit onto the sky at that distance. So the actual practice of measuring this angle is not a two-point thing. You make multiple measurements, and then you apply statistics to, to refine that measurement. But in fact, if you look at it in detail, you can see the ellipticity of the Earth in the parallax signature. It's really quite cool. It's subtle, but it's actually measurable. So the whole point here is that as the star gets further and further away, the parallax angle gets smaller and smaller. This is why Copernicus was not able to prove that the Earth moved around the sun by looking for stellar parallaxes because stellar parallaxes are very small because the stars are so much further away than they thought. Copernicus thought originally that the stars were just beyond the orbit of Saturn and therefore should have had a measurable parallax, but none was seen. Tycho Brahe attempted to measure the parallaxes of stars, again thinking they were just beyond the orbit of Saturn, failed, and concluded that Copernicus must be wrong. But the other alternative was that, in fact, the stars were so much further away than they thought that the parallax was too small for their simple methods to measure. And that's exactly what the problem was. You picked an interpretation, and then, of course, you had a preconceived notion, oh, but of course the Earth is the center, so this proves it. They didn't explore it further. It took until the 19th century to actually see parallaxes. Let's go a little movie again to show you how the stellar parallaxes appear to work. This is now taking a model of the, of the star. Now we're going to put the star exactly in the plane of the solar system. Over the course of a year, I see the star move back and forth by this much against the background stars. If I move two times further away, the parallax is two times smaller. So again, let's just play it again here. When the star is close, you see it swing back and forth. What you're seeing is the reflex of the Earth moving. The star isn't moving, the Earth is moving, and you see its reflex in the sky. Then more distant, smaller. In fact, twice the distance, half the parallax. It's really very simple. 
The problem, of course, is parallax are small. In fact, the nearest stars of a parallax less than one second of arc. Remember that a degree is divided into 60 minutes of arc. Each minute is divided into 60 seconds, or 3,600 arc seconds per degree. The best naked eye methods of Tycho Brahe could manage was one arc minute, or 60 arc seconds. The nearest parallaxes are almost 70 times smaller than the smallest thing that Tycho Brahe could measure with his instruments. It required a telescope to do this. For example, the nearest star in the sky, which I show in the upper right-hand corner there, is called Proxima Centauri. Its parallax is measured to superb accuracy. It's 0.772 arc seconds, which puts it at just a little over four light years away. This is the largest parallax known because it's the closest star. All other stars are going to be more distant. Their parallaxes are going to be smaller and smaller still as they get far away. The very first parallax that was ever observed was not for Proxima Centauri, which is too far in the southern hemisphere to observe from Europe. You have to go down to Chile or, or Australia to see it. But in fact, it was measured for a star called 61 Cygni by a German astronomer by the name of Bessel. Those of you who may study mathematics, this is the Bessel of Bessel functions. It took him until the year 1837. Compare that to 1543, which was the publication of Copernicus's De Revolutionibus. It took nearly three centuries to measure parallaxes because they were so small. It required telescopic observations of unusual precision. People tried for centuries to measure it. They were hard because the stars are so far away. This tells us the universe was a lot bigger than we originally conceived of. People used to think of the universe as just beyond the orbit of Saturn. In fact, the universe is, at least the nearest stars, are hundreds of thousands of times further away than the most distant planet. The universe is a big place, and we've only gotten to the first star. Now today, what we do is we use photography or digital imaging to measure parallaxes. We take pictures of the sky, night after night after night, of stars of interest like Proxima Centauri, and watch how that star moves against the background of much more distant stars whose parallaxes would be so small, we wouldn't even be sensitive to them there. And in fact, modern methods use spacecraft, and instead of using stars, actually use distant galaxies or quasars, basically active galaxies, millions or billions of light years away as the background reference because those parallaxes are way, way, way too small to measure by any possible method we have. And they represent a good reference of fixed stars against which to watch nearby parallaxes. We'll see this develop through the course of the lecture. Now. The parallax formula is one of the simplest formulas in astronomy. The distance to the object is 1 over the parallax in arc seconds. Now, if I express parallax in arc seconds and not degrees, what is the distance unit? The distance unit becomes a new unit called the parsec. How big is a parsec? It depends upon the size of the Earth's orbit. So a parallax formula tells me that the distance in parsecs is 1 over the parallax in arc seconds. So if I had a star that was 1 arc second away, 1 arc second of parallax, 1 over 1 is 1, it would be 1 parsec away. This defines the parsec. Parsec is a portmanteau word. It's one of those words that's made up of two words mashed together. In this case, parsec is short for parallax second. It stands for, I mean, it is the fundamental unit of distance in astronomy. What it is, is a star with a parallax of one arc second has a distance of one parsec. Okay, parsec is a unit of distance. It's one arc second of parallax. So, how does this relate to other units? Well, we have to relate it through the size of the Earth's orbit. It turns out in 
pretty precise numbers. A parsec is 206,265 astronomical units, or about 3.26 light years, or about 3.085 times 10 to the 13 kilometers. None of these numbers is actually useful to memorize, although if you like light years, just remember that a parsec is about three and a quarter light years, and you're close enough for government work. Well, maybe not for NASA government work, but for certainly you know, state government work. So, parsec is a fundamental unit of distance. It measures the distance of an object with a parallax of one second. Now, why is it we do this? What do, why is it we're using this parallax second, parsec, instead of the light year? Isn't the light year more physical? The answer is really not. The, no, the alternative unit is the light year. A light year is the distance traveled by light in one year. One year meaning the time it takes the Earth to orbit the sun once. So both the parsec and the light year are referenced to the orbit of the Earth. Parsec is determined by the size of the Earth's orbit because it makes the base of the triangle for the geometry. Light year uses the amount of time it takes the Earth to go around. A light year is about a third of a parsec, or about 63,270 AUs. For those of you who have your notes from lecture number one, I had the wrong conversion between light years and AUs on it, by the way. Now, why do we use parsec in preference to the light year? The reason is because the parsec is directly related to the thing I actually observe, which is the parallax. It's just one over the parallax in arc seconds. Therefore, it's a, what we call a natural unit. It relates to what we measure. I've turned an angle, a parallax, in arc seconds into a distance unit. To, convert, to actually get the distance in light years, I have to first measure the parallax, measure it, turn it into parsecs, and then multiply by 3.26. So by stopping at parsecs, I've stopped at the fundamental observation and not simply converted it into a frankly slightly bogus unit of light years, which is great for science fiction writers and stuff like that, but professional astronomers do not use it. Your book, like many astronomy books, lost its nerve and interchangeably uses parsecs and light years, but prefers the light year. A few astronomy books we did not adopt say the parsec is bad and adopt the light year, even though no working astrophysicist on the planet uses the light years in a scientific publication. It's because they're pandering to the fact that, oh my god, people might not be able to handle geometry or something. I don't know what their deal is. They're trying to sell textbooks rather than teach science. All right, that's my, that's my rant for the day. So let's back to parsecs, examples. Take the star Alpha Centauri. Oh, that's interesting. Alpha Centauri has a, para has a parallax of 0.742 arc seconds. Just pay attention to the top one. So I take distances one over parallax, I put in 0.742 arc seconds, do the math, and I find out that Alpha Centauri is 1.35 parsecs away. I have another star, Fred star, oh, some random star, has a parallax of 0.02 parsecs. 0.02 arc seconds. <coughs> Sorry about that. What is its distance? Distance is one over P, which is one over 0.02, do the math, it turns out to be 50 parsecs. So if a star has a parallax of two hundredths of an arc second, it has a distance of 50 parsecs. So you can see why we use the parsec. It's simply one over the parallax in arc seconds. It's a natural, simple unit. I don't have to remember any stupid multiplication factors of 3.26 or whatever. I just do one over the number and boom, I'm done. So parsecs are good. And also notice that as the Parallax gets smaller, the distance gets larger. Now, 
Here is an example of sort of what do we see for a couple of parsecs. How far out do parsecs work? Why is parsec a good number? It turns out to be a natural number because it is of order, a parsec is about the typical distance between stars. Here, for example, is a computer plot of the sort of the 10 parsec diameter sphere around the sun. So I go out five parsecs, make a nice big sphere, five parsecs in radius, and count up all the stars there. That's it. That's all of them, right? You could actually sit there and you can give them names. In fact, we have Leighton Star, Procyon, Sirius, the dog star. Proxim Sirius, the dog star is over here. Proxima Centauri, if you're in the south. Barnard Star, there's 61 Cygni, the very first parallax measurement. Struva 2398, Lalande 21185. Wolf 359, if you get any Star Trek fans here, that was the big battle between the Federation and the Borg, was it Wolf 359? You know, this is the nearby volume of stars. Notice the average distance between stars is about one parsec. So in the solar neighborhood, in the surroundings of the stars, a parsec is a nice natural unit. It's about the mean distance between bright stars. But there are some limitations. Because the stars are so far away, the parallax angles are really, really small. As something becomes smaller and smaller, it becomes hard to measure. Imagine, for example, you had a ruler that was laid out and measures millimeters. Well, that's fine for measuring tables or people or even fingers, but what if someone asks you to measure the width of a human hair with a ruler that's only marked out in millimeters? You're not going to get a very good number. So the precision with which you can measure the size of something depends upon the precision of your ruler. From the ground, parallaxes are pretty coarse. It turns out with the very best digital imaging techniques from the ground, the best we can measure, the smallest parallax I can measure before I can't tell one from another is about one one-hundredth of an arc second. That corresponds to objects out to only 100 parsecs of distance. So beyond 100 parsecs using ground-based telescopes, that's it. It's all over. I cannot measure the parallax because it's too small. And in fact, even though that's the li practical limit, if I wanted a good parallax, like to a precision of 10%, so I knew the difference between 1 parsec and 1.1 parsecs, that's an even smaller volume. Because to have the extra precision, I've got to be a pretty good fraction of 0.01. And that only gives me a few parsecs. In fact, about 10 parsecs distance. Well, I actually have 10% measurements using ground-based techniques. The problem is, there aren't that many stars within this 100 parsec volume. Here's a picture showing the nearby volume of space. This is the so-called solar neighborhood. And what I'm going to show here in the circle is the limit of ground-based parallaxes. Now we're limited to a couple of hundred stars. You can only see the bright stars here. There are some fainter stars hiding in there. That's it. That's like not being able to know the distance of the things in your backyard, but not being able to measure the distance to anything in Columbus. So it's a very, very small volume working from the ground. And that's pushing, that's state-o-the-art from the ground. So, so the limitation of the parallax method is how good, how fine of a parallax you can actually measure. We bottomed out what we can do from the ground. We can go out to a maximum of about 100 parsecs, which is the diameter of that yellow circle, that yellow sphere up on the top there. So I need to do better. How do I do better? Well, it turns out that the reason why I can't measure parallax is really small from the Earth it's because I'm looking up through the Earth's atmosphere, 50 kilometers of air, which is wiggling and jiggling and turbulent like mad. All of you have probably gone swimming. If you've ever gone to the bottom of a swimming pool and try to look up, what you see is it's very distorted. You can't see clearly through the water, 
all the turbulence of the water ruins your view of stuff outside. The same is true looking from the Earth out into space. We're swimming, if you will, at the bottom of an ocean of air. And that air is turbulent and wiggles around and causes the stars to twinkle. What twinkling is, if you looked at a telescope at a very bright star with a big telescope, what you would see is the star is jiggering around all the time because of that turbulence. It's bouncing and jouncing and rattling all over the place. And that means it gets to be really hard to measure a small annual angle back and forth if the star is doing this. So ground-based seeing, as we call it, limits our ability to measure small angles from the ground because I have to look through 50 kilometers of air. Now, much as astronomers would love to strip the air off the Earth, it's kind of impractical for us. So what we do instead is send our telescopes into space. Now, the Hubble Space Telescope can do pretty good, but it's somewhat limited. We actually use special purpose telescopes for this. The process is referred to generically as astrometry, measuring the stars, astro for star, meter for to measure. And the very first of the astronomical satellites to do high-precision astrometry was launched in the late 1980s by the European Space Agency. The United States has not really gotten into the space astrometry game yet, slowly but surely, although the last mission that was attempted to was canceled. The satellite is called Hipparchos. It's actually an acronym, but it's also an honor of the great astronomer of antiquity, Hipparchus, who was the first person to measure precession of the equinoxes and define the modern system of stellar brightnesses. The Hipparchus satellite was launched originally in 1989 from a French rocket out in, in, in French Guiana in South America. It originally was supposed to go into a circular orbit, but unfortunately, there was on the upper stage, there was a little tag that said in French and English and German, please remove before launch. It was the safety pin to keep it from firing on the launch pad. Someone forgot to remove the tag. They must have spoke neither French, German, or English. Oops, the upper stage never fired. So it never got into a circular orbit. And everyone thought, you know, mon dieu, the spacecraft's dead. It went into an elliptical orbit instead. It couldn't fire that last bit to drop into a circular orbit. Well, you know, astronomers who've worked, have spent most of their life working on this, they're not just going to walk away. So they went back and they figured out how to do the experiment with an elliptical orbit. Phenomenal feat. They actually recovered, in fact, exceeded the specifications of the project because they really, really wanted those numbers real bad. Hipparchus was designed to be able to measure parallaxes with a precision of plus or minus a thousandth of an arc second, a milli arc second, and it succeeded beautifully. At a thousandth of an arc second, and given the size of the onboard telescopes, which are somewhat tiny, it could measure parallaxes for 100,000 stars, getting 10% distances out to 100 parsecs, and with long-term techniques and some tricks, could in principle get both distances and motions, although at lower precision, out to 1,000 parsecs away from the sun. So while we were only able to see, <coughs> while we were only able to see just our stellar, ba our stellar backyard before, with Hipparchos, we moved into the stellar neighborhood. So this is the Hipparchos volume achieved when you get a precision of a factor of 10 more for the highest precision parallaxes, plus some extra statistical tricks to push it out further. For reference, that's the ground-based limit, is that little yellow sphere. So Hipparchos really is letting us see the so-called solar neighborhood. There are 100,000 stars, although the, this plot has only showing the, the, the sort of the brighter few, 
now we really do have distances to a lot of nearby stars. And these distances are giving us a goldmine of things like luminosities, masses, radii, other physical measurements. So a lot of the numbers that I'm going to be describing over the next couple of lectures in Stellar Properties are going to be using the beautiful high-precision distances from Hipparchos. But Hipparchos is not the last word because Hipparchos only goes out to 1,000 parsecs at best, and that's just starting to get interesting. It's a real big achievement, but, you know, we always want more. In this case, we really do need more distances. We're not even out of the galactic background. And so there's a new mission has been proposed called Gaia. It's also been proposed by the Europeans. It's a follow-up of Hipparchos. It uses updated Hipparchos technology. It is proposed to be launched in the year 2011. Realistically, it probably won't get launched until about 2013, maybe 2015 if there are delays. But its mission goals are incredibly ambitious. The idea is to measure positions and motions for one billion stars. Hipparchos was 100,000. This is going to go for an even billion. It's going to try to get parallaxes for 200 million of those stars, more than 2,000 times more stars than Hipparchos. The precision is phenomenal. Where Hipparchos was a thousandth of an arc second, this is 10 millionths of an arc second, 10 micro arc seconds for the best precision it can achieve. And some people think it can achieve better. Right now they're arguing at engineering level as to what they can actually do on orbit. A, a parallax of 10 micro arc seconds will give you a 10% distance to 10,000 parsecs. That's an important number astrophysically because the center of our galaxy is 8,000 parsecs away. This means that, our, that the web of direct distance estimates through parallaxes will begin to encompass the center of our own galaxy. To do this will actually allow us to map out the structure and positions of every one of a billion stars in our nearby quadrant of our entire galaxy. Let me show you graphically what this means. This is the, a cartoon of the Milky Way galaxy. The sun is located here, 8,000 parsecs from the center of the Milky Way. That's about 26,000 light years. This inner circle, yellow, is the absolute Hipparchos limit. It barely gets out of the space between the two spiral arms that we reside between. If Gaia works on orbit, it will be able to survey everything inside of that circle, which encompasses the center of the galaxy and more than a third of the local slice of the disk of the Milky Way galaxy. Gaia will be truly revolutionary in its ability to deliver us a clear view of what the distances of stars and the structure of our galaxy looks like. The problem, of course, is this. We don't have Gaia yet. What we have is this little inner circle here, which is Hipparchus. And it's great. It was a marvelous achievement. It outdid over 150 years of measuring parallaxes from the ground. But now we're going to be faced with a real challenge because I can only get direct distances to the nearest stars, to the so-called solar neighborhood. It's like living in Columbus and knowing only the distances precisely to the things in the neighborhood around the university, but not knowing how far away Dayton or Washington or Tokyo are. So how are we going to measure the distances to these more distant objects? That's going to be one of the central guiding challenges of understanding astronomy, is how do I go beyond Hipparchus before Gaia? And notice also, I'm not even getting the whole galaxy. I'm not even getting out of our galaxy. Distances are the central challenge of astronomy. They have been from day one. They are even today. 
As we go through this class, we're going to see the challenge of distances. But for the rest of this unit, we now have a group of distances that allow us to refine our other descriptions of objects in the heavens, and that's what we're going to pick up for the stars tomorrow.